Case number 21-5179, United States of America versus Honeywell International, Inc. Mr. Primus for the appellant, Mr. Janda for the appellate. Good morning. Good morning. May it please the court. When Congress enacted the False Claims Act in 1863, the prevailing common law at the time recognized joint and several liability for joint tortfeasors with no right of contribution. And that has been the unbroken rule courts have applied ever since. As a result, when multiple parties are jointly liable for the same false claim, any one of them can be held responsible for 100% of the damages, while others may be responsible for nothing at all. And that is the very nature of a joint and several regime with no right of contribution. It is focused on full compensation for the plaintiff and not on an equitable apportionment of fault among the defendant. The question in this case is what is the appropriate measure of the offset for damages already recovered by the government from other defendants for the same false claims? The answer under the common law and common sense is a pro tanto set off for all money received by the government. In response- You keep talking about the common law and the background rule when the act was passed, but what about the statute itself? It says that any person, it says any person who defrauds the government is liable for three times the amount the government sustains because of the act of that person. And under your theory, quote, any person who defrauds the United States government, namely Honeywell, will not have to pay a cent, right? Well, not exactly on the last point, Your Honor, because it would still be liable for- I'm talking about treble damages. Sure, on the treble damages part. But doesn't the statute require any person who defrauds the United States to pay treble damages? No, Your Honor, not in the multiple tortfeasor context. Wait, wait, just stick with the statute. Suppose we weren't talking about multiple tortfeasors or common law or anything. Just look at the statute. You're suggesting a rule, the pro tanto rule, that would result in a person who defrauds the government, namely Honeywell, in not being liable for treble damages. That seems inconsistent with the statute. No, Your Honor, if there were only one defendant, only one tortfeasor, that party would pay treble damages. I'm talking about this case. Correct. And in this case, the way Your Honor is positing the statute be read would indicate- No, I'm not positing it be read anywhere. I was reading you the statute. I understand. And my response is that if it is read that way and every person who is a party to a jointly committed tort is liable for three times the damages, then in theory, you could have 15, 20, 1, 30 times damages. And no court has ever applied it that way. In fact, in US- Well, what's the matter with that? I mean, even I think it was McDermott that said, it wasn't a statutory case, but McDermott says, quote, making tortfeasors pay for the damages they cause can be more important than preventing overcompensation. So the point is that as far as Congress is concerned and the taxpayers are concerned, it's definitely more consistent with the purpose of the statute than to have overpayment than to have, quote, any person who defrauds the government to go off and not pay treble damages. No? Your Honor, if I may respond to that. Of course. McDermott, in our view, is completely an opposite. And McDermott itself says- I wasn't suggesting that McDermott was binding. I was just suggesting that here's the Supreme Court telling us that overpayment is less 
less important than requiring that tortfeasors pay. Well, in, in fact, we've said that too. In, in we've said, Judge Leventhal said the same thing years ago in that, what is it, Rose? He said exactly the same thing. It wasn't a false claims act case. But. Your Honor, the difference with McDermott is uh -huh. that McDermott is a, was a case, first, where the Supreme Court recognized it was admiralty in an area mm -hmm. of judge-made law. Yeah. And second, there was a proportionate fault. There is no regime of which we are aware, and the government has cited none, where there is joint and several liability and no right of contribution, yet a proportionate share approach to an offset. There's just 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 out of curiosity, what where does the joint and several liability come from? Who, what are courts have courts said that there's joint and several liability under the False Claims Act? Yes, the courts have consistently said that, and the Department of Justice is. What? What? Just it's just a it's a question. I'm not challenging you. What? What's your best case for that? Um, Your Honor, I don't have I it, it had. It's it, it, we've cited numerous cases in our in our brief where the courts have consistently held its joint several. And how about and no right of contribution? Where's that come from? Yeah, where's that come from? The no right of contribution has again been consistently held. By the courts and and in How was, versus, it was it actually contested or just just stated? No, in, in most cases it's been stated and applied, but not um, not not reached as, as a holding. But we do believe that it is strong evidence of what the common law uh, was at the time the statute was enacted, and we know that from, for example, the Lovejoy versus Murray case in 1865, which was just two years after the False Claims Act was enacted. And it recognized multiple common law decisions that said where there is full satisfaction uh, of a judgment that the other defendants to a joint tort are not liable for it. And it recognized cases that were from multiple states that were decided before the False Claims Act was enacted. And as the Supreme Court has said multiple times, when Congress passes a statute like the False Claims Act, it does so against a backdrop of Common law. Well, that but that's unless to that's, that's unless the statute itself provides otherwise, correct? Well, if the statute itself is clear, then right. you, you would you look at the look law. at the language of the statute, certainly. But where the statute does not directly address the issue at hand here, the method for calculating offsets, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court has said you look to the common mm -hmm. law at the time. And, and is, is your primary is, is your primary argument about the theory I suggested that it results in overcompensation for the government? Is that, is that your main argument as to why main, literal reading of the statute doesn't work? The, our, our main argument is that a literal reading of the statute uh, w does not answer the question at hand and does direct the court to incorporate the background common law. Where does it say that? Well, we believe the focus is on damages and the treble damages and how to interpret that term. And the statute does not address a joint tortfeasor situation. Mm -hmm. um, if, if it says any person, that's not addressed mm -hmm. to the joint tortfeasor situation. But we, we know that the joint tortfeasors are commonly accused of committing the same false claim. And as I said, the Justice Department, in such cases, when it goes to trial, asks for an instruction of the jury indicating that only one judgment and one amount of damages can be obtained. And it does not ask for three times the damages against each defendant. The government's not even seeking that relief. And we're not aware of any court that has ever acknowledged that. And certainly in U.S. versus Bornstein, the United, the United States Supreme Court, while it wasn't presented, certainly had no issue with and directed the lower courts to, direct, to deduct amounts already paid from a False Claims Act judgment. How do we Joint know reason? that the, um, the apportionment rule and reliance transfer um, should not apply to False Claims Act? Well, 
For uh, two reasons. First, uh, in the admiralty context, the Supreme Court has been careful to say that it is involved in judicial policy and judicial lawmaking. Uh, and then in the Edmonds case, the Supreme Court specifically distinguished the common law approach when you're dealing with a statute. And the court said specifically in Edmonds that once Congress has spoken, we are not as free as we are uh, in the normal admiralty judicial lawmaking context to create common law, federal common law. And the Supreme Court more recently has been very clear that courts should use all the tools, all the interpretive tools in the toolbox before resorting to uh, federal common law. And that has been consistent across many cases, including most recently the Comcast decision. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Borstein because um, Borstein is a False Claims Act case, right? Yes. Yeah. Because your response to my reading McDermott is that that wasn't a False Claims Act case. But Bornstein, the case you rely on, uh, as you point out, the question of whether the pro tanto approach was required or not wasn't before the court. But it picked the approach that the government suggested because, and I'm quoting here, um, the government's approach because it said, um, because it, quote, fixes the liability of the defrauder without reference to the adventitious actions of other persons. Um, and it actually said it twice. It said the prime contractors fortuitous acts and not determine the liability of subcontractors. So it's saying the same thing McDermott said in, uh, in the uh, context of the False Claims Act, namely that uh, the liability of the uh, person who defrauded the government shouldn't be, for treble damages, or in that case, double damages, shouldn't be affected by the actions of another. That's what it said. Yes, and the context in which it said that was in addressing whether damages should be doubled prior to or after the offset. And then it went ahead and directed the lower court to deduct 100% of the uh, other defendants' payment in that case, which is consistent with what the Department of Justice usually seeks in these cases and what we're asking for. Are, are, you familiar with, out of time. are you familiar with any other case in which application of the uh, Rotanto uh, rule would mean a zero liability for party? Well, in the 1865 case of Lovejoy versus Murray, that's what the Supreme Court said the rule was. At the and, that, and that's it. That's the last, that's the last one. Uh, no, uh, but I don't know that this situation arises that frequently where the Justice Department is able to get all of its damages back from the other co-defendants before a case settles. And I would just talk, indicate in terms of you know likelihood of settlement, the threat to each defendant of having 100% exposure on liability here apparently the other defendants to settle early. And indeed, their settlements amount were very modest, except for one. Right? There were two two in the tens of millions. Uh, uh, one was 11 million, I think. There's one 30 approximately and one approximately 70 million. They were substantial uh, for oh. Armour Holdings and for oh. um, and for Toyobo. And, and I would just note, if the, if the government had decided not to settle with those parties and the three companies that made these vests together went to trial, the government would seek one amount of damage. And then they would be trebled, and it would decide which of the three defendants would pay that. They would never get 
more than three times. And that's what the government seeks when it goes to court and offers jury instructions to the judges. That's all we're asking for in this case. Mr. Prentice, um, so assume I agree with you that the FCA is silent on this question, but also um, that I'm not convinced that the common law in 1863 was, was settled. So if we were to set a common law rule now, I mean, the government suggests we should proceed on a case-by-case basis rather than set a particular liability rule. And I'm wondering um, if the FCA doesn't set the rule and the common law doesn't set the rule, why should we set a rule as opposed to (laughs) proceed on a case-by-case basis? Well, Judge Rao, I would say that first, with regard to the rule where there's full satisfaction, that was settled. There was no debate in 1865 in the Supreme Court and that was so that, and that's the exact situation we have here. So I don't think there's a reason to um, have to create a new common law rule. And, and regardless, the proportionate share rule wasn't even a known thing until the 1960s. And so it can't that can't possibly be. Uh, in terms of going with an equitable case by case approach, we were actually surprised to see the government argue for that. I think I know why they are doing that, because they want to be able to choose in every case how much damages they can get. That is a completely unworkable rule, and the, the authority the government cites for that is uh, CERCLA, where Congress actually did speak, and I think actually proves our case, where Congress wants to allow courts equitable discretion to carve up damages among defendants. It knows how to do that, and it speaks. In this case, where it is silent on it, and I, I don't want to say they're silent. They just didn't directly address this issue, but they did create exposure for treble damages for joint tortfeasors, and there's a, a, a settled body of law, we believe, that answers how you deal with it in that situation. And Congress has never spoken to say that that should not be the rule. But if there isn't a bunch of cases like this, if this is one off since 1865, let's say, um, it seems that that the position the government's taken is just chasing this case. It might well be. I mean, that we, we... What else is at stake, really? Nothing but this case. Well, I think a question for the government, Your Honor, is why they're taking this equitable case-by-case approach and why they want that to be the rule, which I think I'm not aware of any other area of the law where that's the case, and certainly not where Congress has a statute in place. And yes, I think that it, they are trying in this case to get more than three times their well, damages. Let's just play it out for a done. second. If, that, if, we had, if, if the government is correct about this and it's going to be case um, then um, what does that do in terms of the effect on settlement? If the government is correct, yeah, I think it will make a, for a very chaotic False Claims Act situation because, um, for instance, if, if everyone knew that the government's new proposed rule was the rule 13 years ago when this case was brought, I suspect we would have had a lot different litigation. The parties probably would have sought to have their cases consolidated so that a proportionate and comparative fault could have been determined in one case. But that's not what happened. And so these cases proceeded on separate tracks. There was no cross-discovery between the Toyobo case and the Honeywell right, case. Right, but looking looking to the future, when yes. no, new cases come along and and that's the government's going to, pardon me, the court's going to decide which rule is to be applied, how does that affect some? If the court adopts Honeywell's proposed rule, I don't think it will change things at all because... If it adopts the government's. If we adopt the government's rule, there will be uh, intense cross-litigation among co-defendants trying to blame one another for the same fault. And it will create many trials within trials. And we will have the situation that we would have on th- in this case on remand, where the whole trial will now become Honeywell versus Toyobo versus Armour Holdings, rather than the question presented, which is whether Honeywell uh, 
submitted a false claim, which incidentally, I'll just say, Honeywell did not. But that, <laughs> I understand that's not at issue here. But that is exactly what will happen. And this case would have been discovered and litigated very differently if we had known this was going to be the rule. Mr. Permiso, what, um, and if we're deciding between the pro tanto and the proportionate share approach, um, how much weight should we put on the purpose of the False Claims Act? So the government argues that it's in part punitive, and you argue that one of its main purposes is compensatory. I mean, how do we think about that in terms of picking between the rules? Your Honor, I think this court said in Semino and has recognized elsewhere, as has the Supreme Court in recent statutory construction cases, that trying to divine the purpose of a statute is very dangerous business. And as Judge Katz has said in the Allen case, it opens the door to, and as this court said in Semino, it opens the court to judicial policymaking. And so we don't resort to the common law at the time the statute was passed uh, just because the Supreme Court said to do that. There's a serious separation of powers reason for that, which is to uh, guide judicial decision-making and interpretation of statutes. And so uh, we would submit that the purpose case law on the False Claims Act is less than clear. Uh, the Supreme Court has said both that it is punitive and that's that story. Uh, in the antitrust cases, which also have trouble damages, the same thing occurs. And there's no judicial line between where it becomes compensatory and uh, punitive in any given case. So we think it's very dangerous. And uh, we think the common law answers this question. So I have a just a question about the record. <clears throat> Do I understand the government? I think I saw this in the district court decision. The government is seeking, uh, what, $17 million from Honeywell? The government is seeking eleven and a half million on the False Claims Act count, and then it's trebled to about thirty-four and a half million. Well, what about from Honeywell specifically? That is the amount. Oh, just to be clear, the government is seeking one hundred percent of the liability from Honeywell, which means if they prevent no, this, what, no, I'm talking about in the district court. Yes, that's what. Where did I get the seventeen million figure? Isn't that what did the district court mean by that? I don't know. Oh. There are other counts that might be talking about, but on the False Claims Act, it's thirty-four and a half million okay. plus penalties. Okay. Thank you, Your Honor. Any other questions? No. Okay. Thank you. We'll hear from. The, did you have a question? No. I didn't. Thank you. Uh, we'll hear from the government. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the court. Uh, Sean Jander for the United States. I'd like to start, if I can, exactly where the court started this morning, which is with the text of the statute. Um, I think, as Judge Taylor, you suggested, uh, the statute makes any violator liable for three times its damages. So the initial, I think, implicit premise of Honeywell's argument that it's entitled to a set-off, it doesn't come from the statute. Yeah, but the, what you just said isn't the position the government took in its brief. Uh, so, Your Honor, I think... You say in your brief the statute doesn't answer this question, which sort of surprised me. Your I think the, the starting point from the statute is that any person is liable for three times the damages. Is what? Is liable for three times damages. Uh -huh. uh, that being said, the government recognizes that uh, there is an equitable principle that entitles joint tort feasors to set-offs when other joint tort feasors settle. Um, and, and the government hasn't contested that application of that equitable principle uh, at a general level is appropriate in this case. But I think the important point here is that Honeywell's argument that it's entitled to a set-off, it isn't a statutory argument. The statute doesn't address that question. It's an argument that itself is grounded in equity. And so I'm not sure how Honeywell can come in and try and sort of start uh, with that equitable premise and then run away from equity when it comes to figuring out, uh, you know, not whether they're entitled to a set-off, but rather whether 
or how you calculate this out. So is it your position that the pro tanto rule can never be used or just can't be used in a case where it results in a person who defrauded the government paying no treble damage? Uh, so, Your Honor, this, so it's an equitable question. Uh, we think the district court... Wait, why is that equitable? What I just said. Why isn't that statutory? So, as I said, the sort of background equitable principle uh, no, no. that it's not found in the statute is a principle that... Uh, I thought you just said to me that the problem with Honeywell's position is that it would result in them not paying treble damages. I think that the sort of specific problem with application of the protonto rule in this case uh-huh. uh, it is an equitable problem, which is that yeah, if Honeywell is not paying any statutory damages, that undermines, uh, it, well, one, it's inequitable with respect mm-hmm. to the other defendants, but two, it undermines the punitive deterrent purposes uh, of the False Claims Act. And as a matter of equity, uh, I think the district court correctly determined uh, the application of the protonto rule in this case does not satisfy the relevant equitable principles. But, but can you, what case can you point to that suggests the False Claims Act, these liability questions should be determined on equitable principles as opposed to, say, common law principles or a particular common law rule? Uh, so, you're, I, mean, I think the, the whole inquiry uh, is a remedial equitable inquiry. And we cite a number of cases in our brief. Uh, well, so we cite some cases from the False Claims Act context, um, not to address this particular question, but that uh, gaps fill in other ways in sort of a common law equity focused basis. Well, common law and equity are not the same thing, right? Uh, I mean, the fact that there's a gap and the gap may have to be filled by a judge-made rule is not the same thing as it as the inquiry being a case-by-case equitable type of inquiry. I mean, those are distinct concepts. Yes, that's correct. Um, however, I think when the court is developing a federal common law rule to apply, uh, it's perfectly appropriate for the court in determining what rule is appropriate to fill the gap in any given uh, context to take account of those equitable principles and, and to the extent that those equitable principles might uh, be circumstance dependent or might point in different directions uh, in, in different cases. Can you can you point to any case in which there has been a decision a court had to make about setting a liability rule, which it has then proceeded case by case as opposed to picking one rule or another? So there isn't a ton of case law uh, that specifically because because we couldn't find really, and I don't think any of the cases you cite. I mean, where the court has recognized there's a gap, it always picks a rule. So uh, historically, that has been correct, Your Honor. Uh, I mean, I think the one difference is in the circle context where Congress statute there is distinct. Right, right. Uh, and most of these cases, right, the statute doesn't address it. Uh, Courts have historically picked one rule or the other, but the courts haven't really looked at the question whether. Uh, they should pick one rule to apply in all cases, or, or whether it would be better to proceed but on so, But they do cases. pick a rule, though. That's sort of our practice, is to pick a rule. Uh, th- that is reflected in uh, the bulk of the case. Well, that's right. And I think I said CERCLA is uh, sort of the one place uh, that I know of where Congress has addressed the question. Uh, and there, Congress said, uh, at least in certain circumstances, courts should proceed um, according to the principles of equity. So I guess I guess I have a question for the government, which is if we were to pick a rule, which rule should we pick? We just we don't think that's the appropriate question. But but uh, assume I, mean, so I think that if we think that that's what we need to do in this context, which rule would the government prefer? Because the government sometimes, you know, has argued for the pro tanto approach. So if there's going to be one rule, which rule does the government prefer? So the government hasn't taken a position on that question, Your Honor, and I think it's sort of helpful to take a step back to try to understand why. Um, and I think in this case, it is a particularly stark example um, of a context where the pro tanto rule really leads to an inequitable result. 
um, and doesn't result in sort of furthering the statutory scheme uh, and the purposes of the False Claims Act. But there are other cases where the proportionate share uh, approach in those cases uh, might sort of similarly not further the appropriate purposes of the False Claims Act, uh, might lead to undercompensation. And, and there are still other cases where you know, maybe both rules uh, sort of further the purposes of the False Claims Act and the statutory scheme similarly, but there are equity reasons or judicial economy reasons that one approach or the other. It's going to be a complete mess if there's no rule. I mean, how will, how will, <laughs> settling, how will settling parties have any idea how to proceed in terms of working with the government to settle if they don't know when they settle, whether they'll have to play a proportionate share or whether their settlement will be final? I mean, how, how, how is it going to work with when you have so many of these cases where there are many different um, tort feasors? Uh, well, I think as a general rule, settlement is always uh, proceeding in the face of uncertainty, uh, legal uncertainty about what might happen to trial, um, uncertainty about uh, you know, what a jury might end up doing uh, if the case gets to trial. And, and I can see that there might be a little bit more uncertainty if the court adopts the government's approach than if the court adopts a little, a little more uncertainty. You think it'll just be a little bit? Uh, yeah, Your Honor, I don't think that it's um, that much more uncertainty. I, mean, I think in a lot of cases, to the extent that a settlement uh, generally reflects the proportionate share um, uh, of a particular settling defendant's liability, uh, then the two approaches sort of come out into a pretty similar, uh, pretty similar result. And, and of course, I mean, I think Honeywell's approach, uh, one input of that approach is what every other defendant settles for. And so at the outset of the case, uh, each defendant has no idea what other defendants might settle for. And so I'm not sure that adopting um, that approach really reduces uncertainty on the front end. Uh, it might reduce uncertainty once you have a bunch of defendants who have settled and there's one defendant left, uh, but that's a pretty rare circumstance where you have one lone holdout. What did the Supreme Court do in McDermott? Was that pick your choice, uh, pick your, your rule as you go? Uh, no, you're right. The Supreme Court in McDermott said that in the admiralty context, the proportionate share rule uh, was appropriate. The court, though, I mean, didn't consider uh, the question whether it should adopt one. It didn't consider that it didn't occur to anybody. In fact, I've never heard it suggest, and I can't find any suggestion anywhere in the cases of the treatises that there's something other than a rule. So, you're, as I said, we acknowledge that the cases have generally picked one rule or the other rule, um, or a third rule, uh, or a fourth rule back in common law days. Um, but that being said, I don't think there's any particular reason that the court should feel compelled to adopt a single rule. Um, and stepping back, the two well, rules. I, can say, I mean, you're just saying the government wants the right to be opt opportunistic, right? Uh, it's not just the government. Well, it's the government in this case, of course, but why would this not spill over into uh, other contexts, courts, and so on? Uh, so I think there's sort of two parts to that question, Your Honor. So taking the second part first, um, you know, we think that the determination of what the court ought to do uh, should be guided uh, in large part by the statutory scheme and the purposes of the statute. And so I don't think there's, if the court adopts this case-by-case uh, -case approach that we've been advocating in this context, that would necessarily spill over into other contexts or other statutory schemes. Um, it, but that being said, you know, I, I just don't think that um, it's entirely fair to characterize the government's approach as being um, the approach that seeks the most money in any given case. Um, and I think, as we said in our briefs, there are also concerns of equity among defendants. There are concerns of judicial economy. Um, those concerns okay, might... Okay, how do, how do they... It seems to me they're... Even from your account, they are at war here, right? In other words, judicial economy would be set back with the uncertainty, et cetera, and having many trials about proportionality. And whereas on your account, 
fairness would be advanced? So I think it very much depends on the particular circumstances of, of any given case. And so... Well, this case I'm talking about. That's what you're, that's what you're talking about. So in this particular case, I mean, the district court, I think, considered the judicial economy question um, and, and found that in its experience, juries are perfectly capable of making these sorts of determinations. And I think a lot of the evidence um, that Honeywell points to about what other joint tort feasors did uh, in this case would likely be admitted anyway uh, to provide context for the dispute, um, sort of inform the jury about how, what happened. How many, uh, how many defendants in this matter? Uh, so in this uh, case, I believe Honeywell is the only defendant. How many parties against such claims were made? Uh, I'm not sure the exact number, Your Honor. Uh, more than three? More than three, I would say. More than five? Uh, perhaps more than five. Um, although not all of the defendants uh, are sort of directly linked um, so to we, Honeywell. This is not your typical med mail case, right? Two, case, two parties, maybe three at the most. Uh, so there are a relatively large number um, of potentially liable parties in this case, Your Honor, or, or in this sort of general fraud investigation. That being said, I mean, the district court, I think, looked at uh, this particular question and just determined that uh, given its experience litigating complex trials, this wasn't a particularly um, difficult problem to solve, and it didn't consider that to be, uh, you know, a particularly strong reason to adopt the protonto approach in this case. And I think does the government agree that the FCA is a joint and several liability statute? Uh, we have not contested that in this case, Your Honor. Uh, my sense of the case law um, is the same as my friend on the other sides, uh, which is that courts have applied joint and several liability. Um, I'll be honest; I'm not sure. Uh, if the government has taken an official position uh, on that question, I wouldn't want to take one without being authorized to do so. But, but that has been uh, the rule that courts have applied. The, the FCA nowhere requires the determination of proportionate fault, does it? Not as part of the statutory scheme um, or sort of in general. No. Right. So if we were to if we were to choose a rule, I mean. Doesn't the pro tanto approach seem more consistent with the FCA than the proportionate share? Uh, I don't think so, Your Honor. I, I mean, it, or do you think one of these approaches is more consistent with the statute? When you started, you said we should be focused on the statute. So does the statute suggest one approach is preferable or more consistent with one approach or another? But either approach may be more consistent with the statute in a particular case. And I think that just underscores why picking one approach um, to apply in all cases it isn't the appropriate way to go about it. And in this case, uh, the proportionate share approach is more consistent with the statute. Um, it, it furthers the statutory goals um, of deterrence and, and punishing. So is that just the purpose of the statute that you're referring to, or is it some particular provision of the statute? I think it's the statutory scheme, um, and, and in particular, the damages provision, which, uh, of course, aware is a treble damages provision. The Supreme Court has characterized that uh, as reflecting uh, Congress's understanding that Part of the statute's purpose is to deter fraud against the government, to punish past fraud against the government. Um, and, and those are goals of the statute that would not be advanced. Uh, they would be utterly undermined in a world where Honeywell is allowed to escape with no statutory damages whatsoever. Simply because. Under your, under your no rule rule, uh, I suppose a district judge uh, could look at the, let's say, plethora of, of parties against whom a claim is made and say, this is just too inefficient. We're not going to go through determining proportionality for 13 different companies. So we're going to use the, the Botanto. 
And another district judge could look at that and say, you know, I don't see a problem with that. I've got cases with 13 claimants, claimees, I guess. Um, so I'll use the other one. So I think it's correct, Your Honor, sort of as an initial matter, that that sort of um, or question to consider uh, is one that we think is perfectly appropriate for district courts to consider in determining which rule to apply in any case. Um, and, and it may be the case that different district judges or different district courts would balance uh, the relevant considerations in different ways. Uh, but I think that's just a common feature of um, sort of equitable discretionary inquiries. I don't think there's anything specific about this inquiry uh, that is particularly problematic in that respect. How much is the government seeking from Honeywell? Uh, so the underlying damages from Honeywell would be uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of $34 million. Of how uh, many? The government would... How many? I'm sorry. 34, you said? Uh, that's correct, Your Honor. Is that trebled or... Trebled. That's trebled. Okay. Uh, and then the government concedes uh, that Honeywell is entitled to uh, a, a credit um, for the proportionate share of other defense liability, which would reduce that $34 million um, by some amount. I don't know what the jury would say, but the proportionate share is. Wait, wait, wait. So the government agrees that the $34 million can be reduced. Correct, Your Honor. And is that the amount of reduction to be determined by the jury? Uh, yes, sir. So, so under the proportion Why did they get, didn't the district court mention a credit of $18 million or something? Uh, so, so I think the portion of the district court opinion that uh, you're, you're referring to, Your Honor, is where um, the district court sort of said, if I were to adopt the pro tanto approach, oh, here are sort of, the government had an expert that said, this is how you would apply the pro tanto approach. Honeywell had an expert that said, this is how you would apply the pro tanto approach. And that, that was the government's um, expert applying the pro tanto approach. All right, so if we agree with you, then we say, uh, I'm not sure what the rationale would be yet, but we say the pro tanto approach is not appropriate in this case, correct? And then we send it back to the district court. Correct. We say That's nothing correct. else. Uh, so, right, I think all you would need to say is that the district court did not abuse its discretion in determining that the appropriate approach in this case is the proportionate share approach. I see. And what's your response to Mr. Primus's argument that under the government's theory, it's going to receive more than treble damages uh, of its loss, treble its loss? So I think the argument, Your Honor, was squarely rejected uh, as particularly persuasive by the Supreme Court and McDermott. Uh, well, McDermott wasn't a false claims act case. Uh, that's correct, but I think it's actually more persuasive, um, or I guess that argument is less persuasive in this context. I mean, McDermott was not a trouble damages case, so, so the punitive and deterrent rationales of the statute um, or, or of the regime were even, I think, less evident. And, and there, the Supreme Court said there's no rigid rule against overcompensation, uh, and sometimes it's more important to make a tortfeasor pay for the harm the tortfeasor has caused uh, than to um, prevent over-recovery. I think that's even more true in this context, where we're talking about a fraud on the government, on taxpayers. Well, what do you do with the fact that the statute says treble damages of its losses, treble its losses? So, so the statute says, Your Honor, that each violator is liable uh -huh. um, for those treble damages. Uh, it doesn't say, I mean, number one, it doesn't say the government should not be permitted to recover more than treble damages in, in circumstances like doesn't this. Doesn't it say, um, doesn't it say, it says any person who defrauds the government is liable to three times the damages caused by the, quote, act of that person. Act of that person, not all the government's losses, just that person's losses. 
Correct, Your Honor. So the 34 million, the, the treble 34 million, um, which is kind of the bottom line or top line number, uh, it is only connected to the false claims that relate to Honeywell's alleged misrepresentations. So that's how we sort of focus in on uh, Honeywell's uh, misconduct in this case. And that sort of provides a starting point for any application of either of them. Anything else? Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, Mr. Primus, you are out of town, out of time, excuse me, but you can take two minutes. Yeah. The position the government is taking here is really extraordinary, and they haven't taken a position. Quote, I haven't taken a position on which rules should apply. The government concedes pro tanto does apply, and I suspect in most cases that's the rule they would want to apply. And so they're asking this court to uh, really upset and create a lot of chaos in False Claims Act law to obtain a judgment uh, against one party. Uh, and it will cause, uh, it is not consistent with the statute and will cause great havoc. I also just want to be clear uh, in response to Judge Ginsburg, the government is seeking 100% liability from Honeywell. So they've already recovered full amounts for the vests at issue, and they're going for 100%. A jury may or may not. What are the dollar amounts? Excuse me? What are the dollar amounts? What have they recovered? They've recovered, um, for purposes of vests that contain Honeywell's product, uh, $35 million or $36 million, and they hold us where they say we're liable for $34 and a half. So at the end, they'll have $70 million if they're successful. So and you think, you think we, sh we should then ignore... The statutory requirement that that any person who defrauds a government is liable to three times its damage. We, we're going to ignore that. Your well, Honor, I, I do want to address the, the textual argument too. Um, the the statute says, and, and I think Your Honor um, skipped the part about civil penalties. And no, says, I didn't. Well, I, I didn't. I know it says civil penalties, but so far the government isn't seeking civil penalties, as far as I know. Maybe oh, it they is. will, but it says it says. Uh, it says um, it says civil penalties plus, right? Correct. Okay. So uh, what I wanted to respond, yeah. Your Honor, was that uh, under the plain language of this statute, Honeywell can be liable if it is found to have committed this false claim, liable to the United States government for a civil penalty of not less than five thousand and not more than ten thousand, and we have not disputed that. So that part of the statute. And certainly still be enforced as written. But suppose the damages just times. but suppose the damages instead of being thirty-four million dollars are say we had the exact same case, except except the damages were a hundred million dollars government was seeking. Certainly a, a fine of five to ten thousand dollars is gonna compensate the government. It it depends on the number of claims. Wait a minute, okay. Let's case. let's say there's just one or two two parties. That's all. Hundred million dollars, well, and it says plus. It's, what do you do about the word plus? Well, the, that's uh, textually, you have the liability for the civil penalties, which still exists, and then for the three times the amount of damages portion, we say that that can be interpreted as written, subject to the offsets that both parties agree exist in this case. I was just responding to your. I understand that's your argument. I was. You, you seem to be suggesting that maybe the. Five to ten thousand dollars civil penalty is somehow compensatory to the government. No, what I'm, oh. the point there is just textually the statute yeah. mm -hmm. still has financial exposure for a defendant who is liable, mm -hmm. even with the offset approach to the 
three times damages. Okay. And in addition, that is the penalty. It's a civil penalty. That is the punitive portion. Mr. Chris, is it the question, what does it mean to be liable? I mean, the, the statute doesn't say that a person will pay three times trouble damages. They're liable for trouble damages. And being liable doesn't always mean that. Your Honor, that was the point I was trying to make, mm -hmm. which is that Honeywell, under the reading that we're proposing, can still be held liable for a false claim, still be subject to the civil penalties, still potentially be subject to the three times the damages, unless they're offset by other people who have already paid. That is right. actually. Is there a collateral consequence to being held liable under the False Claims Act? Are you forbidden from bidding for a while or things like that? Yes, Your Honor, that's, if we're talking in the world of purpose, again, which we don't advocate, but certainly uh, there are other consequences to Honeywell if it is found liable. There's the penalty provision. There are reporting obligations in federal government contracting. There are discretionary determinations that can be made by government agencies with a party that's found liable for a false claim. So it's a serious business, it could be even debarment. with the offset. There is potential debarment, although I want to say for the record that I don't believe that would be appropriate in this case. But yes, those are all serious risks that any uh, False Claims Act defendant faces, regardless of whether they pay three times damages or not. All right. Anything else? Yeah. Okay, thank you. The case is submitted.